0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials.
1: Today we're talking consumer goods.
0: Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, Lou Whiteman joins me to take a look at Jeff Bezos' upcoming trip to space, check in on defense stocks and more. Lou, great to have you back on the show.
1: Always a pleasure, Nick. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, it's it's been it's been a wild year. Space tourism has been pretty hot ever since Virgin Galactic came public uh, over a year ago, maybe we're looking at two years now. Um, at this point, space back in the headlines uh, in the past week. Jeff Bezos announcing on Instagram that he and his brother will be uh, among the crew when Blue Origin does its first uh, uh, manned space flight with their new Shepard spacecraft in July. What should we be paying attention to with this story?
1: so july 20th jeff bezos could be launched into space with his brother july 20th if the weather looks good and this is sort of you know the tortoise and the hare story we've we've heard a lot about spacex obviously we've heard a lot about virgin galactic and blue origin i mean you you don't not hear about a jeff bezos product but it's sort of been they've just been meandering along at their own pace and uh look out here they are now and yeah if so he will beat richard branson or he could we should say he richard branson Virgin Galactic. He had hoped to go last summer as for his 70th birthday. Uh, a lot went wrong with that timetable. COVID gets part of the blame, but partially, you know, this is complicated and you got to get it right. So, um, it looked like Richard Branson would be our first billionaire in space. Jeff Bezos is going to try and uh, jump the line and get up there next month.
0: Yeah, it's the, it's the battle of the billionaires here. I mean, if, if do you feel like, you know, uh, and I have tweeted about this, right? Who had, who had Bezos get into space before Musk? Do you feel like this is a this is a chip on the shoulder for for the other billionaires in this game?
1: I think it is. I I think it probably matters to them more than it should to us. I mean, to that point, uh, Richard Branson said one tweet that was very, "This is great, congratulations," and also a tweet. Hey, I may go on the next test flight in uh, early July. Ha. Huh. So, I mean, we'll see about that because he's not that that will take FAA approval, but yeah, this is a big deal and it does matter. It, we're talking about it. This is a niche opportunity. Hype is going to matter and it's a very different experience. I think there's a lot, you know, it, it I I think the market may just play out as it does, but uh, you know, this is this is largely hopes and dreams and hype and uh, more than anything and so you know it doesn't really matter to me who goes up first but the the fact we're talking about it the fact that this is sort of creating the buzz creating the market it's not insignificant for these guys either.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's worth noting, uh, you know, I think to fly on Virgin Galactic, it's like a quarter million dollars to buy a ticket. So, the addressable market for this really is, kind of, billionaires fulfilling their childhood dream when we think about who can afford um, these types of things. So, it it shouldn't really surprise us, given the nature of the industry at this point, that it's billionaires fighting over who's going to get to space first and probably going to be lots more billionaires before folks like me and you um, are flying on these spacecraft. So, maybe that goes to the size of the market today, maybe something we wanted to talk about. Lots of excitement here. Uh, but still, this is a very small market.
1: This is a small market. I think space tourism, for the time being, is very small, very select, as you say, with the ticket prices. Also, it remains to be seen once people do this. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be cool to be weightless for a second. But, you know, I mean, I was just, there was a Wall Street Journal story today it was ta- or the other day talking about, you know, the experience. Like Most people, when they get zero gravity for the first time, vomit. You know, which you know, it's not a great thing to talk about in a business podcast, but it remains to be seen if these initial Yelp reviews are really like, like, wow, I still want to do this. I, you know, so um, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the bigger market right now is these come; these are serious companies trying serious things to get to space, and there is a market for that with commercial launches with NASA. Uh, there are limits to this market, but you know, this is sort of the, this old boy network, which was you know Boeing, uh, orbital science, which is now on by. Northrop, a couple of players are is being disrupted by newcomers, which is both very exciting and very worrisome because it's not a huge market, and and we're going to have to see how that all plays out.
0: Right, if you're cutting it up into more pieces, then uh, you know that, that presents some challenges. I think one other thing that's interesting is, is we're you know we're moving into this uh, uh, commercial space. Travel universe more and more. Assuming um, you know uh, Bezos and um, and Branson are successfully able to complete their flights, these are going to be the first paying customers to uh to uh, to go on these flights. I mean, I guess they paid to start the company. I mean, it's not like they're selling outside tickets. Um, but still, this this is very new. It's still something that is not regulated by by the FAA. I think that'll be a, a big milestone when we have you know this is a mature enough industry that you don't have to sign a waiver to hop on the uh, on the on the rocket ship. You know. At what point do you say, okay, this isn't an emerging industry and this thing is is mature? Are there any kind of uh, signposts we should be looking for?
1: Well, I, I, I think I think we're in agreement here, and I think you're right. If the, the FAA is actually getting involved, I think that would be sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval. Where you know instead of. I mean, it's still going to be a massive waiver. Look, these days, there's a massive waiver if you almost anywhere. But, but uh, so yes, there's going to be waivers. But I think in this is one of those businesses that regulation helps, and they're going to come in. So I think that is a sign of of maturity. I also think just just you know, I mean, it it, it it's a weird market right now for these guys where they are are doing things at cost or below cost. And when we see how these businesses play out, when we start, I mean, whether or not if I I don't. I'm not sure Bezos has any desire to take Blue Origin public so we may but but kind of you know we are going to reach a critical mass where there's actual results there's an actual business and we're going to see how big it is and it may it 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 could sort of squanch some of the dreams of investors or it could it could show wow yeah they I mean it, they're going to have to invent markets here and I think the next stage of this is to see how big those markets can be and and how successful they are in sort of Finding uses for these things.
0: Yeah, TBD. As you mentioned earlier, one of the the place where there is you know a. a- more meaningful market is in these these uh, space launches, working with NASA, working with the government. We've mentioned in the past how government as your sole customer uh, is an important factor of this business. Well, one business where the government is the sole customer has been doing quite well this year, that's Defense Stocks. If you look at uh, the defense sector doing, doing quite well this year. The headline I saw this week, um, that Huntington Ingalls Industries, which is one of the largest shipbuilders builders in the U.S., also the employer of my stepdad, so has a little has a little spot um, in my heart. Hiring three thousand full time workers for their for their uh, shipyards. So one of the things we've talked about in the past, um, as maybe potential flies in the ointment of the of the defense story, is that there have been a significant. Um, investment made or allocation made towards enlarging the Navy under the, under the previous administration now uh, with President Biden moving in. Some worries that maybe that gets pulled back. Well, when you have one of the nation's largest shipbuilders saying, hey, we're hiring 3,000 more workers, that's really showing uh, confidence in a continued robust defense budget. What do you make of the environment for defense stocks and what we can maybe read through from this action by Huntington Ingalls?
1: Sure sure, so so context this is definitely good news. it's three thousand jobs and it's on the Gulf Coast, it's in the Ingalls side of it, which uh you know, I mean Nick, you understand from being from down there, but I uh, kind of is the the ugly stepchild of Huntington Ingalls because it's not it, it's not the nukes that they have in uh in Virginia Beach, so this is good news, but I mean, look, Ingalls right now has eleven thousand employees a couple of years ago it was at almost thirteen, so Getting three. I mean, this is kind of an ebb and flow. What we've seen is is that the destroy some of these last generation ships that were already baked in prior to the before the previous administration talked about growth those are those contracts are maturing and to, the, to the point where we are getting steady workflow. So, I think that explains Ingalls. Uh, you know, th- th- that's where they make the destroyer, that's where they make the Coast Guard cutter. So, I think it's more of a sign of steady work. But uh, your point is a good one. Uh, too much is made of administration's year-to-year budget when people consider this sector. Uh, and what we're seeing with this bounce back off of a terrible 2020, uh, where most of the stocks were down 10 to 30 uh, based largely on the fear of a new administration. Now we've seen the budget and we're saying, hey, okay, they can live with this, so uh, we're seeing the bounce back. Uh, th- the budget is out now, we can actually look at it. It is flat down. Uh, investment spending, which is kind of the contractor portion of the bigger pie, is down, but only down by about 1%. It's 248 Billion with a B. Uh, that's about two billion better than we expected. Uh, R and D, which tends to be the higher margin than a new ship, R and D is up. So you know what we found in the last couple months, and as the budget started to take shape, is. The worst fears weren't going to be realized, and the stocks have recovered. And I I think it makes sense. I think people who were listening to the two of us last year might have might have seen this coming. But I but I think the sell off was overdone, and so now this is more of a bounce back than a a a Biden defense rally or something like that.
0: Right, and you know. Not to get too political here, but I think when you think about some of the priorities of of the Biden administration and that we want to stimulate the economy, we want to create jobs, all those sorts of things, you know, it's it's always challenging to get these types of, of stimulus uh spending bills passed. Well, one thing that can stimulate the economy and create jobs, like we're seeing with Huntington Ingalls, and that tends to be uh supported on both sides. Of the aisle, um, at least on you know spending more um, is defense, right? It's one place where you can get both sides to agree. Hey, hey, we can spend some money on defense. So, actually, in this environment, if you look at some of the priorities of the administration, you could tell a story about how um, you know there's probably some some support for defense spending. When you look at the sector today, Lou, obviously, you know a lot of these companies up significantly so far this year. Do you, they still seem attractive, or do you think the valuation has has normalized? What are your thoughts?
1: So I thought some of them looked attractive before the sell-off, and so now that it's back, I my feeling on relative. Attractiveness really hasn't changed. I mean, I, I thought there were some screaming buys last year with the sell-off, but you know, even they you know, it's funny to look at because uh, Lockheed Martin is kind of the laggard this year. They're only up ten percent, but they were the best performer last year when they were only down eight percent. You know, when some were down twenty, thirty. So what? I mean, I I do think for long-term holders, especially those who are interested in income, because you get dividend yields two, three percent. I I don't see anything in the winds that make me think this sector is going to hit the skids. Uh, And remember, on the politics and all this, that most, like I said, with Huntington Ingalls, most of what they are building today was allocated years ago. The weird cool thing about investing in this sector is, is that with this one customer, and this customer is so transparent in his plans with a five-year outlook on what they want to spend every year, you have that, you have backlogs in the tens to hundreds of billions for these big companies. Even if defense spending falls off the cliff, that's a 2030 problem at this point. So, there is, there is a sleep at night, I mean, it's not going to give you cloud appreci- stock appreciation sometimes, but it, dividend focus, sleep at night, steady growth, nothing has changed in the last year as they've gone down and up that changes my opinion on that.
0: Yeah, and this is the type of sector that, frankly, you don't want hypergrowth because that means some bad things are happening in the world. Right, you, want it, yes. you want it to be a, a uh, just kind of steady, you know, uh, the walk softly and carry a big stick uh, type spending. Um, yeah, you don't. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. <laughs> so, so, moving on, uh, last story, Boeing has been all over the news the past couple of years, whether it's the 737 MAX or, or any, any of number of other uh, issues that have befallen Boeing. We got a grab bag of news with Boeing this week. What is, what's happening with this company?
1: Sure. So maybe I'll try and go bad to good here because there is. But Boeing has had a year's worth of news this week. Uh, the the downside uh, earlier in the week. Uh, the as part of this budget process, we're going to have hearings, and the uh, House. Uh, uh, so- uh, Defense Appropriations Committee brought up in hear- the Air Force budget hearings apparent or alleged overbilling in the KC-46 tanker spare parts contracts. This is actually spare parts headed for Japan. Japan is about to take the tanker, and uh, it's only an eighty-eight million dollar contract, but about ten million of it, the Air Force basically said, "Look, we can't explain what why we're paying what we are." And this is a program that has cost Boeing about five billion in overruns, and it's led to a lot of grumbling inside the Pentagon. Oh, here we go. Here's how they're going to get it back, and it's gotten the lawmakers, and it's kind of it's it's another black eye. Now, I'll say in this case. Uh, the kc-46 is based on the 767 which is a commercial plane the commercial supply chain was thrown into disarray by the uh by the pandemic last year price quotes were probably really hard to get and at least one of these products uh boeing has said look we we were underpricing it for a long time, if you don't believe us, we release you from your obligation, you can just go buy it from Honeywell directly. Air Force kind of looked into that and said, never mind, which kind of makes me think it's probably, this is no big deal, but again, you don't want Congress people yelling at you for cheating the government at budget hearings, so it's It's kind of part of cost of doing business, but it's also not great for Boeing. Uh, good news is they did have good news this week. Uh maybe one of the coolest things they're doing, their stingray drone which is designed to refuel F18 Hornets in flight uh off of naval carriers. This could really really be a game changer for the for the attack plan with a carrier cuz it could add 400 500 mi- 100 mile nautical miles of range to these you know really keep the carriers out of danger. Uh, It completed its first successful in-flight refueling. Uh, It was within 25 feet at full speed, filled the tank, which is just amazing to think of. This is a real priority for the Navy. Uh, Upwards of 30% of its fighter jets at any given time in a combat scenario are designated tankers just for refueling so if you could do this with drones this is this is a way that you can get more bang for your buck without a huge investment so the fact that this works i think the fact, i mean they still have a lot more testing but this is this could turn into a 10 billion plus opportunity if it works. And the first test, from what they say, went off without a hitch. So, you have that going for them on the defense side. Uh, Southwest continues to buy planes. They added 34 to 100-plane order. Uh, these are the smaller 737 MAX 7s, which were kind of a hard sell until now. So, you have that. And we may have, uh, with President Biden over in Europe for the summit, it looks like we may finally have 20 years of terra ending which would be really good news for both Boeing and Airbus but it's been a you know you blink first situation that um maybe we can get past so a lot going on with Boeing and and more of it probably good than bad right now
0: right you you mentioned uh you know that that one part steal you know, with some of these issues Boeing has had the past couple of years, maybe they get less benefit of the doubt on some of these things than they would have gotten previously. But yeah, huge, a huge win there with the, uh, with, um, with the drone. And then when you look at Southwest, you know, they've always been a key partner for Boeing. What do you make of their move to just keep pressing in on the 737 MAX? Do you think that's been a good strategy from their perspective?
1: So, this was a plane that they couldn't decide if they wanted to take. This was a real concern for Boeing because this, this smaller max isn't necessarily the plane they want. Boeing doesn't have a good. 120 to 160-seater right now. That's uh, They were going to get that through a, a, a joint venture with Embraer, but that fell through during the pandemic. Uh, there is an Airbus plane that is a great fit for this market. Uh, Southwest actually flirted with Airbus there, which would have been a huge symbolic blow. So, it's good to see Southwest doing the initial deal, it's good to see them hanging on. I will say this, Southwest. the reason Southwest is who they are, and, and is the stock that it's been, is they take advantage of downturns. I think these deals are probably good for Boeing because they are moving metal and they are affirming, reaffirming a very important relationship. I'm willing to bet Southwest is getting a steal and a half on these on these planes, and the fact that they are recommitting to it, where they're not going to get deliveries from years out, that just tells me that this is a price where you know it it may not quite be bogo, (laughs) buy one get one free, but it's it's getting towards those levels. So. It probably makes sense for Boeing anyway, you need to rebuild this line, you need to establish the, the partnerships, you need to move inventory after the MAX is grounded for 18 months. But economically, I don't think it's the home run that we would have imagined prior to the grounding and like if, if just 100-plus or plain order for the MAX.
0: Right, the leverage shifted during that period where they had to ground all so. those planes. From where, where it's Boeing, I have this huge backlog. You better pay me to get to get your piece of this backlog. To now, it's Boeing. I need to sell these planes. You know, I need to get these off of my lot and actually to customers. Um, and that mistake uh, with with the 737 Max totally shifted uh, the negotiating dynamics uh, in the industry away from Boeing's favor. So you mentioned as well this tariff. Uh, uh, potentially lifting these issues between Airbus and Boeing. Clearly, you can see how this benefits both of them. Boeing can sell more into Europe and some of these other markets. Airbus can sell more into North America. Who do you think wins more from this, though, in your opinion?
1: So, you know, I mean, the real winner is the airlines. And uh, that's part of what's pushing this, is after the pandemic, um, you know, there was a real talk of, you know, you guys got to play nice, because at the end of the day, this adds to our cost and on time we can't do it. I think all in, it benefits Boeing just because Airbus has such substantial domestic operations. Now, there's been some complaints on that and parts and all that, but look, it, it's a win-win for both. It's it's neither. A, it I mean, it it they've basically neutralized each other on tariffs. Um, they they both yell at me for saying that, which. Tells you that they really have neutralized each other, but uh, I mean, this is just a a stupid hassle. And the second it's resolved, I'm sure it'll open up again from both of them on a new front where they see some other unfair. But it's it's just been sort of a a, a cost of doing business now for twenty years. So it's time to clean the slate and, like I say, probably start over with new complaints. So it, you know,
0: yeah, move move to a different battleground. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. So. You know, we mentioned right when we started off this segment how it has been, you know, uh, going through a gauntlet for Boeing over the past, you know, couple years. Do you think Boeing's out of the woods yet? What should investors be watching for?
1: So, so I'll answer this a few ways. I, the, the worst is over, and the worst has been over for a long time. But um, I, as you mentioned, you know, um, greater scrutiny from uh, lawmakers, greater scrutiny from the FAA right now, too. After what happened with the MAX, you've seen both the MAX and the Dreamliner production shut down this year for various points for relatively minor issues or addressable issues, where in years past, it might have been keep it running and figure it out. Uh, FAA said, no, you stop and you figure this out. So, they, that's going to take a while. It doesn't really stop the business, but that's a crimp on the business. But I, I, I think the worst is over. I wonder how long it will take to really see the upcycle, and I'll give you two things that I think you should be looking for right now that are really going to be, in my mind, green lights or go signs. Uh, First of all, China still hasn't recertified the MAX. That is sort of a regulatory thing with the plane, but it's sort of geopolitical and what's been going on between China and the United States over the last, how many years? Uh, This is a huge piece of leverage they have. I've seen some. It feels like constantly now. I've been seeing it's any day now, or in the next few weeks, we're going to see China giving the green light. I've been seeing that since the end of last year. Um, I I have no idea when that's going to happen. My sense is is that China likes having this leverage, and look, China represents maybe forty percent of the global potential order book for narrow bodies like the seven thirty seven. This is a huge deal, and it. Really does impact Boeing, so I want to see that resolve before I get too excited. Second thing, and the real big, the next big upcycle, I think is going to be in these wide bodies. The whether it's a seven eighty seven, the new triple seven X, which they can't move right now if they try. These are the international planes, the two two aisles down the middle for you know when you're flying international. More than 20% of the global fleet, possibly 25%, is over 20 years old. These are not fuel efficient, but they're very expensive. So, right now in this market, there's no real hurry to get rid of them. When airlines feel confident, and when their balance sheets are ready post-COVID, and when they see that demand, you are going to see a flood of orders, I think, for wide bodies it might be the second half of this decade, it could be sooner, it could be into the 2030s, but it will happen. And that is probably the the catalyst for the next big upcycle in aerospace, in commercial aerospace. And, you know, maybe it's too late to climb on board by then if it takes too long because people have been warming to the stock. But, you know, I, I, I think people do underestimate how long. We had such an extended upcycle last time around. I, I don't think, think it's a given that the next one starts anytime soon. And reading the tea leaves on wide-body demand, reading what the airlines want, I think is a pretty good thing to watch in terms of getting a feel for uh, when things really heat up again.
0: I love it, Lou. Uh, Always love having you on the podcast. Uh, Until next time.
1: Always good to be here, Nick. (laughs)
0: As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on!